It's nice to be with you all again, and uh, looking forward to spending uh, this time with you in Corinthians. So if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, I'd invite you to open up to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, and we will continue our series on community. And uh, if you missed our first two weeks, we are in the middle of a series on community, and we're using the book of Corinthians to help us get there, um, in part because Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. Uh, because they have some issues that are getting in the way of really being the body of Christ. And we've talked about in previous weeks that being a church is more than just individual Christians showing up at a building on Sunday morning. Uh, that is something that we do, but that doesn't make us the church. And so last week we talked about the giftings that the Holy Spirit gives us, and I want to pick up on that this week as we transition to chapter 13. But before we do, I just want to recognize uh, that I have a couple words of thanks uh, to Bob and to Ron. So last week, Bob, in between the services, came up to me and he handed me a laser pointer. And he said, Pastor Pat, you need one of these because I don't know what you're pointing to on the screen. So use this laser pointer. So I was thankful to have that last week. And then midweek, I got a call from Ron and he said, hey, I think you need a laser pointer. So I have two now, um, and sadly, uh, this week I don't, have to, I don't have anything I can use them on, but uh, hopefully uh, we'll use them before our series is out, because now I can be a double-fisted laser pointer. Okay, last week um, the challenge at the end of the sermon was try taking a spiritual gift test, and so I know that a number of you took that spiritual gift test. If you were here last week or didn't have the opportunity, if you stop by faithchurchmanitowoc.org, and you can scroll down our main homepage there, and you'll see a link to a spiritual gifts test. And if you follow that link and have about 15 minutes, you can take the test. And I bet uh, a few of you did. I did too, and I have my results here. And I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about that here. Um, you're ranked based on where you came out on this test, and it gives you a numerical value. And so my top three were teaching knowledge, and wisdom. <laughs> yes, I am a wise guy. That's right. I also came out kind of high in exhortation or encouragement and pastoring. So those are helpful if you want to be a pastor in a church. And that happens to be me. So what about you? Um, the good news is these qualities that are in this list can be applied to many different spheres of ministry. And we have lots of different things to do here. There's a link on our homepage that talks about just some of the many ways in which you can plug into body life here at Faith Church. That is giving back and helping to build up the body of Christ through your giftedness. Lots of ways to do that. And you can bring your gifting to whatever area of ministry you choose to plug into. And there are, if you have sort of like a, a gift mix like mine that sort of trends or skews in a certain direction, there are certain places where you might uh, be more effective than other places. So talking with a pastor or one of the directors of our ministries uh, can help get you headed in the right direction. So just a, a plug about that from last week. And that leads us into this week. Uh, we talked about chapter 12 of Corinthians, and I wanted to read the last verse of chapter 12 because that brings us right into chapter 13. So you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts, but now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. 
So he spends his entire chapter 12 in his letter talking about all these different ways in which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, empowers and enlivens believing people to give back. And there are so many gifts. And he, as we talked about last week, doesn't even list them all here in this letter to the Corinthians. He's just cherry-picking some of them. And he says, I, I want you to eagerly desire the most helpful gifts. And then he says, however, there's an even better aspiration. I want you to find the most excellent way. And then he goes on to say that. So his letter is almost like a crescendo that leads to chapter 13. And if there was a kind of center of gravity of his letter, it would be chapter 13. That's the weightiest. That's the one that is load-bearing for his letter. That, that holds up everything else that he puts on top of it is chapter 13, where we're going to spend time this morning. So this is a really significant chapter in Corinthians, and it's crucial for body life. If, if you cared about writing to a group of people that you wanted to encourage to be a church, not just in name, but in heart and in deed, you'd write and need to write something like chapter 13. What we talked about last week with the giftings that's a little bit interesting or ironic is that it is the Holy Spirit that gives giftings to people who know God. So as Buzz told us this morning on the video, belief in the promises of God is what transfers a person from separated from God to being in right relationship with God. That we can't do things to make us good enough, but we do have the capacity to believe. And as Buzz encouraged us, if we believe the promises of God, that Jesus Christ took the weight of our sin, bore it upon himself on the cross, and that he died and rose again, and that that transaction, that change, that the innocent substitute can be paid for in our place, if we believe that, those promises of God, that changes our destiny, and we become part of God's family. When that happens, an individual is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That very power of God is poured out into the life of an individual, and that Holy Spirit resides within that believer for the entirety of their natural life. So a person who doesn't know God doesn't have the power of God within them. That is, they, they can't please God in the way that a person who is a believer can please God. They can't fight sin the way that someone who is a believer can fight sin. So all of us have a broken part of our human nature. It's the, the part of us that pulls us back towards those worst parts of who we are. For a believing person, there is hope to fight with that pull, that it is not inevitable, that it won't always color every single outcome, because the believing person has the Holy Spirit, the power of God within them, to fight that battle and to win. That's encouraging. So that spirit, that powerful spirit that enables gifting, that empowers gifting, that inspires gifting, defers discretion to each and in each individual. That Holy Spirit defers to your discretion on how you will use his gifting in your life here in this body of believers. That irony we talked about last week is crucial in this discussion because you all have the ability to use your gifting in a way that wrecks community. And Paul starts chapter 13 acknowledging that in an interesting way 
and let's look at that. It says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of God's secret plans, and I possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and I even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So I want to follow Paul's logic here in chapter 13, and I'd like to camp out in those beautiful verses with the description of agape, that Greek word that talks about selfless or others-focused love that is such a beautiful description of the way in which God loves us. And the Apostle John says, we don't know about love because it came from us. We can love because God first loved us. So it's that pouring out of who he is that allows us to offer back to him and to others that same kind of agape, that Greek word for that special kind of others-focused sacrificial love. Well, the Corinthian church was enamored. They were impressed with that spiritual gift of being able to speak in a language that nobody understood. And that's interesting, right? Because if you were to stand up and share something in a language that I couldn't understand, I might be impressed with your delivery, your elocution. I could be impressed with how you seemed to know what you were talking about, but it wouldn't help me, right? It wouldn't help me because I don't know what you're saying. So all I could do is be impressed that the Holy Spirit has apparently given you the ability to speak in some language that nobody else knows. So it draws attention to the individual at the expense of the group. And for the Corinthians, that seemed to be impressive. They liked that. The people would be standing up, drawing attention to themselves, expressing that giftedness at the expense of the understanding and cohesion of the whole. So Paul is writing, and we talked about that in 11 and 12, and now in 13, he leads off with the favorite gift 
of the Corinthian church, this ability to speak in languages nobody understands. That's the very first place he chooses to make this interesting remark and observation that you can use your gifting and, in fact, not just use your gifting, you can be a superstar. You can be like a superhero. You can have almost magical powers to do incredible things for God, things unexplainable apart from God. The ability to use the Spirit's power to do things no one else can do. The Apostle Paul says you can be like that. And if you do, the phenomenally gifted person he's describing here, who can not only speak every tongue, dialect, and language on the planet, but he can even speak, this individual Paul's referring to, perhaps even himself, but he could speak languages nobody's ever heard because they're not spoken on this planet. There's languages that angels know, dialects that angels speak. If you found that person, let's just say it's Paul, and he can speak in all these languages, it would impress the Corinthians, but he said, if I do that and I don't have love, I become a bothersome interruption. This superstar, amazing person who's doing all of these incredible things is an, a bothersome interruption when it comes to building community life in a church. That's something that Paul says right off to the Corinthian church. Is that to say that speaking in other languages, tongues, is that a bad thing? Paul's not saying that, but what he is saying is the exercising of gifts in and of themselves don't offer the, the body of Christ necessarily anything. That the only thing that really activates your gifting is only when it's coupled with and partnered by love. That's really the only thing that makes any gifting worthwhile in the body of Christ. And he starts out, with this phenomenal gift of tongues. But then he goes on to say, likewise, if I can know all of these mysteries and I can tell you things that are going to happen in the future, and not only that, but I have so much faith that echoing the words of Jesus that I can move objects at will because of my faith. I mean, I don't know if Paul knew anybody like that, but we don't probably know anybody like that. But Paul said, even if you could have those kind of demonstrable, obvious um, impactful gifts that are changing the world and people's reality. You can actually do crazy stuff that no one can explain. If you're doing that, that's empty. That in and of itself qualifies you for no responsibility in the church. Zero responsibility in the church. That you can do miraculous things. That ability does not qualify you for any responsibility in the body of Christ. And unfortunately, that's not how it often goes with people who are gifted. Often, with gifting, people lead with that, as though somehow that's a qualification, that they should be considered for inclusion in body life and responsibility and ministry. Because I can, look what I can do. It's obvious. I even get paid out there for this stuff. I'm willing to give it to you for free. Right? There's some people who are just kind of like that. They know they got it. That qualifies that person for zero responsibility in the church if it's not encased and supported by love, Paul says. I don't care how awesome you are. I don't care how much you've got going on. If you're not loving, 
zero responsibility. It's zero help to the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say, well, let's just say you don't have a special superpower spiritually. Let's just say you're like super person where you are giving everything you have to the poor. You just go out and you sell everything and like pay it forward, except it's like pay everything forward, right? So you're just giving it away and you live in a tent or a van down by the river, whatever. So you're giving it all away or you don't just stop at things, you give your life away, right? You become a martyr. What does Paul say? If you don't have that bathed in love, then there's no profit in it. He says there's no reward, meaning at the judgment seat of Christ, something as magnanimous and inspirational as martyrdom that is not bathed in love will not lead to a reward in the eternal kingdom. So Paul is saying something very, very strong to the church about the primacy, the centrality, the needfulness of love. And then he goes right into this beautiful description of love, which I want you to follow along with on the back of your outline. And we have four little blanks there. And sometimes pastors like to put together acrostics, and I thought I would try it. <clears throat> and see how it went. So there's four lines, there's going to be four letters. The first letter is L. And if you're good, you're gonna figure out where I'm going with these four letters before long. <clears throat> the first word, however, that starts with L is language. So I would write out language, and then I would put a little dash, and then I would put these additional words, verbal and nonverbal. Verbal and nonverbal language. So what we're going to be talking about today when we talk about these four verses that contain so much about love and building community here, it's not only about the words that we use. It's also about other qualities that we'll talk about, and they all have to kind of work together in order to produce a loving environment. So if you know what a Venn diagram is, I'm a big fan of circles and Venn diagrams. They're just sort of my favorite things. Venn diagrams are when you take a circle and you overlap it with another circle, and then you have sort of outside parts and inside parts. That's my favorite. I don't know why, it just is, which is interesting because I, I hate geometry. But so when I came up with my acrostic, I said to my wife, Jessica, hey, what do you think? It's an acrostic. And she said, great. I said, should I use it? She said, you go ahead and use it. I said, all right. And then I showed her my Venn diagram. And I said, should I use this? And she said, that's too far. Don't use, don't use the diagram. Why? I mean, I'm really impressed with it. I could take over the screen and show you on my fancy iPad. But I took these four different things we're going to talk about today, and I overlapped them, and you know what shape they made when they all overlap in the middle? A heart. Seriously. Oh, if only you could see it. I know that you would love it. So why, why am I saying that? I'm saying that because these are issues that will overlap, and so the first two that we're going to talk about, patience and kindness, they are displayed by verbal and nonverbal communication, but they're also attitudes of the heart which we'll be talking about in a minute. And you'll notice the attitudes of the heart that we'll talk about can also be expressed verbally and non-verbally. 
So again, there's these overlaps, and I'll just ask you to you know, give me that a little bit as we talk through this, that some of this is a little bit artificial as we try to unpack what's in here, but I had to decide how to do it, and this is how I did it, so you're going to have to deal with it. So love, love being patient. Now, I can offer words to you that are patient or are kind, right? But when that's not coupled with a spirit or a heart attitude that's patient or kind, it's going to ring hollow for you. In fact, you might even pick up sort of some hypocrisy if you notice that there's a disconnect between the words that come out of my mouth and what you read off of my face, right? So nonverbal is all about, you know, what do you see in my, is my brow furrowed? And what's the tone of my voice? And what's the volume of my voice? And what's the vocabulary that I'm using? And what's my body language? You pay attention to all of that and you add it up, and you come up with meaning. You come up with what I really, really mean. And people are very intuitive. All of you, to varying degrees, are good at reading nonverbal cues. And you figure things out based on what you're picking up nonverbally. That's called emotional intelligence. And the better you are at it, the more intuitive you are. And the less well you are at reading cues, the more blunders you, cre you create uh, relationally. Um, so why am I saying this? Because patience can be fake. So if you were in the car with me last night, you would have seen me faking patience. How was I faking it? <clears throat> so I drove past Culver's, and against my better judgment, I decided I would get a single scoop hot fudge sundae over the uh, eclair flavor of the day. It sounded really yummy. And so I pulled in, and just as I was about to get to the drive-through order place, somebody pulled in front of me. They didn't have a really big car, so I didn't think they'd have a really big order. But there I was, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. I thought, Am I a, maybe I should put this in reverse. And just about the time I thought, I'm getting out of here. Forget it. I don't have time for this. Somebody pulled in behind me, so now I was stuck. So I'm holding on to the steering wheel. You're seeing my knuckles become white. Now, I'm not swearing my head off, right? I'm not yelling at the person in front of me, but what's going on non-verbally inside of me? I might outwardly be demonstrating patience just by the words that aren't coming out of my mouth, but you would be very quick to understand there's very little patience, Pat, that you're demonstrating in this trivial moment of waiting for ice cream. Really? That's all it takes, Pat, to get you unhinged? And I want my ice cream. So patience has to be internal and external. That's love. That builds community. Kindness. It can be language, but kindness has such a bigger impact when it's coupled with a heart attitude that's kind that's gentle. So there's L for language. There's O on your outline. And O stands for opinions or attitudes. Opinions or attitudes. And you could write both of those there next to it, opinions or attitudes, because they're synonymous. So patience and kindness, they're about giving. It's about what you give to people here at Faith Church. When you are kind to someone, you are offering them something. It's a gift. 
When you are patient with someone, you're offering them a gift. So creating love in a family atmosphere that is really connected and healthy, it's about giving gifts, kindness and patience. But it's also about refusing certain things. And it's specifically about refusing jealousy, boasting, pride, and being rude. So starting off that list of what we don't offer in community is that first word, jealous. Love is not jealous. And so some of you are familiar with the Bible, and you're thinking of a verse right now that the Lord talks about his jealousy for Israel, that he is jealous for us. In fact, there's a song that's kind of popular right now. He is jealous for me. Love's like it. Right? Some of you know that song. So what is it? Because <laughs> I thought God is love. God is love, but God is not jealous like this, even though God says he is jealous, and it has to do with the difference between me and you and God. God needs nothing. There is no emptiness in God. There is no insecurity in God. There is only fullness in God. So God is expressing to people who are finite and limited an idea that's close enough to how he feels about us, which is what we interpret as jealousy. What is, what is jealousy when we think about it? It's that desire for primacy, for, to be the apple of someone's eye, to be the object of their affection. That's what we think of when we think of being jealous, that I, I want you and me to be exclusive in our connection with each other. That's what we mean, and that's what God is trying to say that he wants. He wants that kind of relationship with people. I want to have that exclusive one-on-one one -on -one relationship with you. For people, we're in a different category. We're limited, and we don't start out full. We start out with emptiness. And so the emptiness drives jealousy for people, which is not what drives it for God. God is pursuing you out of fullness. Our jealousy is driven out of emptiness. Why is that? Uh, because we were raised in families where mom and dad were both sinful people. And though they loved us and did their best, they failed to love you and I in a way that would extinguish the question mark that we all have in our hearts about whether we're worth the trouble, whether we're truly love, lovable, whether we're worth someone's pursuit. We would love to settle those questions. But if we're honest, we would recognize those questions don't easily get settled. So when Jessica looks at me tenderly and she says, I love you. We've been married 22 years this month. I love you. And it's a moment of sincerity, and she offers it in genuine, heartfelt devotion. There are times when I say, really? You really love me? That's 22 years in, that I'm still asking that question. You think it'll go away at year 32? <laughs> or 42? Or 52? Really? You love me? That question mark in the heart comes from a place of emptiness, which is what makes our jealousy an act of filling 
the void, different than God's fullness pursuing us from a full heart. So when my emptiness drives me, I'm taking from you to fill emptiness in me. That's why jealousy, that primal need to fill emptiness, that that wrecks community. I mean, it makes sense, right? When I'm a cannibal and I'm cannibalizing your emotional well-being to fill my emptiness, that wrecks all kinds of stuff. And often I'm blind to it when I'm running through relationships like that. When I need to be in first place in someone's life, not just romantically, when I need to be recognized professionally, when I need to be recognized for my giftedness, when I need to be recognized for my preferences, all of that stuff comes from that same place and it wrecks the beauty of connection and community. So Paul says, love is not jealous. It's not boastful and proud. And those things are off-putting to us. We acknowledge competency, but when competency demands to be recognized, that becomes off-putting. Again, it's that taking. It's that taking to fill that emptiness. And then there's the beautiful addition of not being rude. Love is not rude. And that rudeness really refers to just brash, boorish behavior. So there is a refinement to love. There is a gentleness to love. Some people wonder, you know, is it appropriate to curse as a Christian? Uh, No, it's out of step with love. Why? Because our language and our behavior should avoid being rude. Actually, it should be offering something beautiful, something kind, something gracious something gentle, something valuable. And our language and vocabulary, as well as our behavior, that verbal and nonverbal, can communicate that. So love doesn't take away decorum. Love adds that. Not only that, but love doesn't demand its own way. So our country is all about assertiveness, right? You know, look out for number one. That's what we're all about. In the church, that kind of attitude wrecks stuff, and I think we probably understand that instinctively, but you'd be surprised, maybe even dismayed, at how many times Pastor Jeremy, myself, others on staff, get a phone call that says, Pastor Pat, I got something to say to you, and you better listen. This needs to happen in the church. This needs to stop happening in the church. I know, because it's what I think. So I get the phone call, someone demanding that their preference, perspective, values get recognized and doggone quick. So when that happens, when you end up throttling your leaders because they're not allowing themselves to be controlled by your preferences, can you see how that could wreck community? (laughs) We probably could see that. I I would hope we would. because what's number one on your list is maybe number seven on your list. And your number one is maybe number 13 on their list. We're all just going to sort of like scrap and fight and figure out, you know, whoever can be the loudest and the meanest and the roughest and the toughest. Is that how we decide what happens here? Well, that's not love. And there might be environments out there where that's how things get decided, but not here. Here, we're not demanding our own way. We're not demanding our own preferences, Paul says. That's 
Corinthian church, that's not how you build community. That's not how you create a healing community. That's not how you build family, by throwing your weight around. And I would say, yes, Pastor Jeremy and I get the phone calls from the people who are saying, this is how it's got to be, buddy. We get those phone calls. But we also get the opposite side of that. There, did you know that there's a way to demand your own way in a really passive-aggressive way by becoming a martyr? Nobody listens to me. Everybody overlooks me. I guess what I want doesn't matter to anybody, right? That's demanding your own way. It's just sort of in a martyr version, right? So you become a persecuted saint who's hoping for the best but always being overlooked. Love doesn't demand its own way. That's what Paul says if you want to be loving. Well, what about my gift, Paul? If you're not loving, it's empty. If you're not loving, it's going to hurt community. But I am really competent. You're not loving, it's hurting community. Well, the third blank there is V. And V is not for vendetta or vengeance, but that is our word. Vengeance, but you have to write the word no before it, okay? No, no vengeance. So then he goes on to talk about not being irritable, not keeping a record of wrong, that you're not rejoicing in injustice, and that you're rejoicing when truth wins out. So vengeance, of course, is about paying back a wrong in my time and in my way. And I may not be able to legally exercise the vengeance that I have in mind for you. <laughs> that may not be legal, but I can still fantasize about it in my heart, right? And I can, when I see you, close my heart towards you. I can clench my jaw and I can think about all the things I'd say to you if I could just not be a Christian for a few minutes, right? And then I think all those things. And, you're, you know, if, if I'm in that space where I'm, like, uh, hating somebody, but I'm outwardly not saying anything, you're just like me in the drive-thru line at Culver's, right? You're faking it. <laughs> you're pretending that you're not being vengeful, but absolutely you're being vengeful. Pay attention to your heart attitude, which is why Jesus could say, if you mutter a simple curse like you fool, to someone else, you're in, in dangers of the fires of hell. Because Jesus is telling us it's the heart that, that hijacks a person's life. So your irritability, your ability to keep a little black book that's got names in it, the names of the people that you give a wide berth to, the names of the people that you stop talking to when you see them, the names of the people who you won't make eye contact with on Sunday morning, that book of names, that wrecks community. And Paul says, I don't care if you're gifted, I don't care if you're serving, I don't care if you're a miracle worker. If that's how you're operating, then it's empty. Not only that, but that person who's on your list in, in, in first place, who's driving that car that they shouldn't be driving because it's obviously bad stewardship and they're not being generous with their money if they can drive around in a car like that and then you drive past them and they just smashed into a deer <laughs> not a very fancy car now is it 
<laughs> That's rejoicing about injustice, right? That comes from a petty heart. That comes from an empty place in your heart, an envious place in your heart, when you rejoice about bad things that happen to other people. But it does rejoice, Paul says, love does, when truth wins out, when, when what needs to come out comes out in the end. That's what love rejoices about. So in this piece on vengeance, I just want to encourage you with some words that my mother offered me, my wise mom. She said a long time ago, Pat, adversity does not build character. Adversity reveals character, right? So just like a ketchup bottle, adversity squeezes out what's inside so that you can see it. It's unlikely for that to be displayed in 70 minutes on Sunday morning. You can hold it together for 70 minutes, maybe even 95. Some of you are like overachievers. You can hold it together that long, but some of you get in the parking lot and <laughs> And some of you haven't made it to church yet and <laughs> all this stuff is coming out. Because we're late. Can't be late for church. Right? That kind of stuff. Pat in the drive-thru line, right? Right? Okay. What's in comes out. What I would invite you to do is to thank God for those moments. Thank you, God, that I just had a meltdown in festival because I picked the wrong line. Thank you. Why should I be thankful for that? Because the alternative is to beat yourself up that you're not Mother Teresa and that you have such lousy temper and that you don't have any patience. You, know, you, you could do that. Or you could say, thank you, Lord, you're inviting me to see what you know is there and then I've been able to hide until this. And I don't like what I see and I'd like it not to be there, but I'm only gonna be able to deal with it if I pay attention to it. Adversity reveals character. When bad things come out of your life, thank God. They need to be exposed so that you can begin the process of growing through that, which is why I love church when it gets real. And when stuff hits the fan, <laughs> that's when it gets real. When things get messy, when people get really mad, when people have meltdowns that they're embarrassed about later, you know what I do? Thank you, God. Thank you that you revealed to this person that there's work that needs to be done. That's when discipleship starts to happen. That's when a person can follow Jesus because now there's something I need to follow him through. All this garbage I just displayed in this last meltdown of mine. That's a mercy. That's supposed to happen in community. You've got rough edges. Your family of origin wasn't enough to rub them all off. You needed a bigger family to rub them off. You needed a family of hundreds. <laughs> Did you know that? You're that much of a piece of work. That you need hundreds of people to help you grow, not just the three or four or five in your family. Yeah. 
So come here, do your stuff, have your meltdowns, but then expect your shepherds, your leaders, to say, hey, I love you, we got to talk through that. Well, I wouldn't have done that if you weren't such a lousy pastor. If it's not in there, it can't come out. That's what your loving pastor should say to you. I didn't put it in there for it to come out. It was in there, and it came out. So community, what we long to be here, can't really happen if we're so intent on making sure that the lid never comes off and you never see anything ugly come out of my life. And that's part of the reason why some of you, you like start a stopwatch. You come in the front door and you're like, okay, 70 minutes, hope he doesn't go long. We're out of here. And like a shot, you're out through the doors. Why? Because the longer you connect with people, the more likely something's going to come out, right? And, and we're going to start to see what's in your life. And again, I long for this church to be a place where we're all like, yes, did you see that meltdown that he had in the foyer? That was awesome. Did you see him yelling at his kids on the way to church? That's awesome. Why is it awesome? Because it happened? No, because it's getting exposed. Sin needs to be exposed in order to be dealt with. So we try to hide sin. God wants to expose sin. Let's make this a community that doesn't collude to keep sin a secret, but that allows it to come out so we can deal, deal with it. And lastly, E. I know you saw it coming. E for endurance. And what does Paul say love does? It doesn't give up. Never gives up, never loses faith always hopeful and it endures through every circumstance if you don't lose faith it means you haven't lost the vision it means you haven't lost the picture of what you need to be true in life it means that you're holding on to promises if you don't give up to faith give up on faith if you don't give up on hope it means you're staying alive in your spirit you haven't the, the light hasn't gone out if you're holding on to hope and enduring through every circumstance. So, are you going to love perfectly? You're supposed to shake your head. No, Pat, I won't. That's not the takeaway from today's lesson, is that you would love perfectly. But Paul has given us a target. He's given us a description. He said, I want Corinthian church, and he would say it to us, faith church, I want you to love each other, not to be phenomenally gifted. I don't want that. I want you to be loving, and out of that love, if you happen to be gifted, great. But really, the core needs to be loving. And so, you will need to demonstrate patience and kindness, which means if God is sovereign and he wants you to grow, he's going to have to ha have you encounter people and situations which will squeeze out your impatience, your intolerance, your unkindness, and your rudeness. Thank you, God. When that happens, and my prayer for you all is that that happens. That's a kind of a lousy prayer, but it's one that I know will be granted. God will answer the prayer to expose your stuff today. And if you escape the answer to my prayer today, wait. The only way you can survive from now until next week without that prayer getting answered is if you don't interact with anyone at all. 
because then no one will be able to tell the truth about you. <laughs> we can delude ourselves, but other people are more truthful. So my hope and my prayer for all of us is that God will expose where we need to grow in love. When that happens, this becomes a family. This becomes safe. This becomes a place where you live, not to hide, but to grow. And that's the kind of church that's worth having. I'd like to invite you.